Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today we'll hear about the first black-owned bank in the Rocky Mountain region. If we can break down the barriers of opportunity and can have a welcoming environment where where people can get access to capital without the fear of discrimination. Drag queen Patty Gonia speaks about intersectional environmentalism at Gay Ski Week in Aspen. So I think with relationships, you can build trust. And through trust, you can really collaborate and make a difference. And you can make people feel really welcome. And it can be genuine. And thousands flock to the National Western Stock Show in Denver. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. On April 3rd, 1968, the day before he was assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his last speech in Memphis, Tennessee. He urged people to move their money to a black-owned bank in Memphis to be part of a movement that would inject capital into disadvantaged and underbanked communities. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. That vision of black-owned and black-controlled banks is now 55 years later coming to fruition in the Rocky Mountains. It's part of a national movement that's spurred along by Dr. Bernice King, the daughter of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Salt Lake City, Utah, will soon be home to the nation's 17th black-owned bank and it'll be the first in the region. Redemption Holding Company has acquired Utah-based Holiday Bank and Trust in Salt Lake City and they're going to create Redemption Bank. KRCL's Lara Jones and Rashawn Leak spoke with Redemption Holding Company board chair and CEO Ashley Bell on the show Radioactive. Ashley, you know, you said you started your first business when you were 19. Over the course of your your business life, what has access to capital been like for you? Well, you know, like most people, you know, who look to start a business and, um, you know, you start with your friends and family, the people who trust you the most. And I think that the aspect of trust is critical component to um, how marginalized communities deal with or choose not to deal with financial institutions. Um, historically, there's been a, a lot of valid reasons for there to be distrust, especially in the black community with financial institutions. Um, and, and, and so like most black businesses, you start off with the people who you know you can trust and you might not view uh, a bank as the first place to go if you're a black entrepreneur and you're starting a business. You'd be challenged to find uh, a black entrepreneur setting out to say that their first stop was to a bank. Um, it's usually like most entrepreneurs that are people who know you the best, who believe in you. And uh, I was fortunate to have a lot of that too. But, you know, as I evolved uh, and, and got out of the, the retail business um, and started pursuing my legal career and, uh, you know, it, it's, I found myself on the other end of representing a lot of businesses and understanding the challenges particularly for minority-owned businesses, are, are twofold. The one is access to capital, and the second is access to customers. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what this redemption 
you know, a holding company uh, acquisition is is really iconic because it it, it talks about uh, and, and is an example of integration at, at its most uh, profound economic level. I mean, most times, black businesses only make money from black people, so um, you can only be as successful as the population you're around. Um, and when really, you know, when you have good services and you have a good product, you want as, you want access to as many customers as possible. Um, and I think the Brookings Institute, you know, kind of said it well in the Washington Post when they were opining on the significance of redemption. And that was that it could change the face of what ownership looks like in this country, um, what the face of ownership could look like in the various communities. I and mean, people in black communities across the country are very, very used to, you know, different uh uh, backgrounds and different folks coming into the community owning the multiple uh, enterprises that we call staples, but you don't really see that the other way around. Mm-hmm. And and we think that you know when I look at the the founding of this 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 project, uh, Dr. King and I, who is my co-founder in this endeavor, and we're we're so fortunate, and so blessed to have people like Byron who are local and have been cemented as you know pillars of the community and part of the tapestry of what makes Salt Lake City what it is. Um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to, to, to have people like him and their support. And Dr. King and I saw that Salt Lake City was unique in the sense that, you know, we felt that, um, that it could happen uh, in Salt Lake City and probably, you know, most likely happen in Salt Lake City when it couldn't happen in other places. Um, Salt Lake's a great city for business, a great state for business. Uh, the regulations are ideal for banking. Um, it allows people like us that may not live in Utah or or from Utah to be able to come in and with a good idea, build a great team and build from there. And I think that's why you see a lot of banks from around the country find Salt Lake City home. But, but for us is the ability for us to be successful. um, is far beyond the regulations. It's the people. I think that Byron can tell you that, you know, firsthand that we've received an overwhelming response about this acquisition. And we think that that response is going to be the bedrock for success um, and I think day one, it makes us the most integrated black bank uh, in the country, meaning that our customer base will be the most diverse. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the future of what, you know, what the next century of enterprises in this country must look like in order for us to you know, achieve the full fruits of a capitalist system that we know works, but it just hasn't worked for everybody. And we think that it can work for everyone if we can break down the barriers of opportunity and can have a welcoming environment where where people can get access to capital without the fear of discrimination, without the worry that um, they'll be judged uh, by anything other than their ability uh, to have a sound plan, a great idea, and you know the know-how and the grit to uh, jump into the marketplace and, and compete. So the question I have is, when traditionally we know that the the goal or the the people that you're looking for is is marginalized individuals and we know that they haven't traditionally trusted banks they we we grow up in you know our grandmothers or great grandmothers were more of the type to leave the money in the mattress if you will so how do we let them know that we're here and we're looking to partner and we're looking to help you flourish and grow because it's there's always been a lack of trust for exactly what you just what you described there's been gatekeeping we know there's been historic racism. There's been there's been redlining and things of that nature that has really stopped people from wanting to wanting to show up because the trust isn't there. So how do we let people know that hey, we are here. We are looking to help you grow. Well, 
you know, you're exactly right. And, but I think it's for those that don't know the history, I think it's worth for those listening to just have a taste of the dynamics of, of what has allowed us to end up in a situation we're in. I mean, you can look as short-sighted back to two weeks ago that uh, one of America's banks called Ameris Bank was recently uh, found to be still redlining and was fined by the Department of Justice for discriminating against black and brown customers. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and all the way back to the very first bank of the Freedmen's Bureau um, that was created for freed men and women immediately after the Civil War. And in the Freedmen's Bureau, ultimately, after it was uh, its new president, its first black president, being the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass, um, but extended to the heights of presidency of the Freedmen's Bureau, he was asked to come in. And he realized that uh, the Freedmen's Bureau that the government created, our government, United States Congress, signature of the president, uh, created this bank that was actually a Ponzi scheme and was stealing the money of freed slaves, new Americans. And with a swipe of a pen, um, the bank disappeared and 80% of black wealth in our country disappeared. And on that day in 1874, black people were 0.5% of America's wealth. And today, in 2023, we are 1% of America as well. And so when you think about that, that time span, um, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, uh, said it best when he said that it would have been better for African-Americans to remain slaves for another decade rather than suffer the psychological ramifications of having a bank built for their uh, purposes of freed slaves and new Americans to have that bank turn on them and evaporate their wealth with no recourse, no ILU, no, no nothing. And that is what you see passed down from generations to generations that speaks to the mattress hoarding of cash, the refusal to trust banks, because that story has been passed down, as W.B. Du Bois said. And so when you try to challenge that trust, uh, it begins with, um, you know, people at the bank that you know. You know, we're a community uh, aspiration for Salt Lake City. We, we want to be community first. And so it's important to, you know, if you're going to compete with the big banks, uh, the only way you can survive in America's banking system to compete with the big box banks and your community bank, you got to start off with that trust. When we talk about the actual name redemption, it doesn't sound like that was by accident. It sounds that that was planned. So can we speak about how that name came to be? Yeah, you know, um, uh, it's a couple of you know, angles there, but, you know, succinctly, you know, my, um, my family, uh, owned a black bank between 1934, uh, 1976 in South Georgia. It was a bank that was created by my great grandfather and great grand uncle, uh, for the purposes of financing freed slaves, um, to buy back the property of which they were indentured. And this allows sharecroppers, people mm-hmm. who, if you don't know what sharecropping is, it is, it is, you know, basically the people that worked on the plantations after slavery stayed on the plantations. Um, they technically weren't slaves, but they worked the land just the same, but they were able to keep 10% of what they farmed. And then with that 10%, they had to live off of that and sell and barter uh, that surplus for their needs and kept them in a perpetual state of poverty. And so the bank concept uh, for my ancestors was out of necessity to change the economics um, because they needed access to credit. Credit is the vehicle by which wealth is created in our country. You cannot 
you know, create wealth in our country without the advent of credit. And so they wanted it. So they created a bank called the Bank of Byronville, and it allowed them to get a loan um, to purchase seeds uh, and to get a line of credit to stay ahead of the, the game and not go into, uh, you know, debt against the, the, the former owners of the land. And eventually they were able to buy the land. And so, um, you know, we lost that bank in 19. 19- 76 because uh, of a of a really a, just a crackdown on black banks after the economy collapsed after the Vietnam War. And um, you had black banks across the country. At the time, there were over 120 black banks, even though there's only 20 now. And many of those black banks were sold at auction, much like the ancestors of mine and others around this country were sold at auction um, and were rolled up and taken from the community and, and rolled up into white banks. And I, in some sense of irony, I guess, that uh, the bank that my family had was rolled up four or five different ways and ultimately became PNC Bank. Um, and that story, uh, being able to try to, you know, come from a legacy of where we lost our banks and they're rolled up into non-minority banks. Um, and the story that I told you of, of the Freedmen's Bureau mm-hmm. is one that is highlighted by the fact that, you know, at every turn, uh, Black Americans have not received any grace or any mercy from a financial system that was supposedly created for the well-being and the prosperity of all Americans. And that just has not happened. And we still see those headlines from the Freedmen's Bureau to Marist Bank today. Um, and so I truly believe that with a little bit of grace and a little bit of mercy, we all can find redemption. That was Ashley Bell with Redemption Bank in Salt Lake City, the first Black-owned bank in the Rocky Mountain region, speaking with Lara Jones and Rashawn Leak on KRCL on the show Radioactive. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The 47th annual Gay Ski Week took place in Aspen January 14th through 21st. It's the oldest annual week-long gay ski event in the nation. Nationally known LGBTQ advocates came to Aspen to participate in an array of events and experiences. This included Patty Gonia, who's a drag queen and climate activist. Patty spoke with Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander on a live broadcast from Aspen Ski Week. We spoke last summer when you were here speaking and performing at the Arts Campus at Willits. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what your message was, particularly what it means to be an intersectional environmentalist? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was here at Taka. It was such a beautiful time. And the whole message was about just connecting people to the outdoors. I think that we're asking a lot of people to care about the environment, but we forget a very important first step, which is to connect to the environment. So talking about queer people, especially diversifying the outdoors and really making it a space for themselves so that we can connect and then learn to fight for this thing. And after all, we fight for what we love, right? So Patty is your drag persona and you perform as her, but when you're not in drag, you often walk through the world as Wynn Wiley. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your relationship with those two identities and how you fluctuate between them? Yeah, drag is a queer art form where anything is possible. It's a playground of possibility. It's a playground of expression. And I think I've really come into my identity as win through drag and you know believe it or not i don't walk through the world wearing 10 pounds of makeup on my face so it is it's fun and it's beautiful and also it's 
Uh, it's really helped me get out of my shell. It's helped me connect to people. It's helped me form a community and a truly queer community. I think for a long time in my life, I uh, really kept myself from having queer community. Um, from Nebraska, it's a very different place than where I am now in Bend, Oregon. And I feel really grateful for drag as a as a opportunity to express myself, make community, and uh, have fun. I think that like we very much forget to just have fun these days. So mm-hmm. it's my chance to play. So you said you grew up in Nebraska, and mm-hmm. as and you've talked about having somewhat of a difficult time growing up there and mm-hmm. expressing your femininity yeah. uh, in that rural space. What advice might you give to kids here in the Roaring Fork Valley, which is in many places a rural space, uh, who are struggling with that too? Hmm. You know, I think growing up queer, we always have to sacrifice pieces of who we are in order to make other people happy. And I think one of the biggest challenges and also opportunities and really brilliant parts of our life can be accepting who we are and not sacrificing pieces of ourselves, and really allowing ourselves to be queer and feminine and fun. And it's amazing how when you let that in, your whole world changes. So my advice would just be to be yourself and the world will never look the same. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your journey finding a chosen family and what Mm. that means? Yeah, I mean, I feel so lucky to have the chosen family that I have. Um, My biological family is not necessarily there for me in all the ways that I need. Um, So I'm really grateful for queerness and for relationships to span across across generations, um, across different identities. It feels so fun. It is so beautiful. Um, and yeah, I've also like never had better food in my life than uh, cooked by my queer <laughs> friends. So it's great. Queer people can cook. <laughs> we do well. <laughs> we do. <laughs> when you came to Basalt this summer, your visit inspired some negative comments on social media, particularly mm. on the Aspen Skiing Company's Instagram mm. page. And you told me back then that it made you feel somewhat uncomfortable or unwelcome being in Aspen, but you're here now. So how do you wrestle with that? Yeah, I think there's safety and strength in numbers, right? It feels really good to be here in community, to have queer community come here, to also see such an amazing turnout of the local queer community in the Valley. And yeah, I think I've really come to learn that if you are getting some hate, you're doing something right in this world. Um, You are making people uncomfortable. And I think that yeah, for me, I am here to spread love, spread joy, spread community. And if people have a problem with that, it sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> and now you're spreading music. What mm. got you into singing? And what made you feel okay. yeah, comfortable enough oh, sharing some of that music with the world? Well, uh, my first love was music. It was the first thing that I feel like I, I really found that was an arts safe space for me. Um, I studied music in college. I studied opera. So we're kind of coming out of the closet as a musician in a way, too. And it's been so fun and beautiful. And my favorite part about it is that it's just been so collaborative. You get to create with such talented people that come from so many different backgrounds and really make uh, each song is like a little ecosystem. So it's Mm -hmm. been really special. So you just used the term coming out of the closet to talk about being a musician. Do you think that... Mm -hmm coming out is an experience that more than just the LGBTQ community has? Yeah, for sure. I think queer people experience coming out uniquely, but I think that we all have closets to come out of, no matter if that is a really tough conversation with yourself or ending a relationship that is not serving you or 
realizing that you need a different home environment, home ecosystem. I think those are all coming out. And I think the craziest part about coming out is that when you come out of the closet, it's just the beginning, baby. You have so many more closets to come out of. And I feel like I've come out of many more closets. And I feel like starting to do drag in a big way was a, a huge coming out as well. Like even though I was out of the closet, I think when I came out, in a lot of ways, I went further back in. I think I, uh, I thought that I could be this uh, acceptable gay person and mm. someone that still people were okay with. And through drag, I've really found myself and I've really found my path and I've really, yeah, led to making some people feel maybe some different ways. Uh, but it's been fun. It's been worth it. Yeah. So you've used the term rainbow washing before, which mm. essentially means that someone or an organization uses a queer person to try to look inclusive or to try to seem queer friendly when they're not really doing the advocacy work. And it makes me think about the rainbow flags that dominate the city of Aspen during Gay Ski Week. Hmm. I really love seeing rainbows dominate the town. Yeah. But then I also wonder how much of a show it is and whether it's for marketing purposes. You know, companies stand to make a lot of money this week uh, hmm. by seeming gay friendly. So how might a company or a person in Aspen really show up to support the queer community this week and, and for the whole year? I'm glad you're bringing that up. I think that there's a lot of performative allyship in this world, um, but I think that there's such an opportunity for people year-round to start at relationships. I think with relationships, you can build trust, and through trust, you can really collaborate and make a difference and you can make people feel really welcome and it can be genuine right and without relationship you have tokenization you have a lot of people that don't trust each other and i don't want to live in an ecosystem like that i want an ecosystem that communicates well that realizes that every single piece has an important role to play and supports each other i think there's a lot we can learn from nature in that patty thank you so much for joining me today thank you so much i appreciate it that was drag queen and environmental activist Patagonia speaking with Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander as part of their live broadcast from Gay Ski Week. The National Western Stock Show just wrapped up in Denver and it brought thousands of people from around the region to Colorado to participate in and to watch events like mutton busters, Mexican rodeos and bull riding. KGNU's Benita Lee went along and brings us this report. It's a bit of a maze here, and I see a bunch of displays. Trade show, National Western Nursery, walkway to rodeo and the event center. Looking for Lauren at the gate, Lauren is next. Amanda, two, happy three, Sarah, four. Hi, my name is Ryan Hall. I'm here at the National Western Stock Show competing in the meters on a horse daiquiri for Alexia Honinger. She owns him, and she's also our head trainer over at Melbrook Equestrian. I'm competing in the low amateur jumpers. We did a power and speed class, so half the class is just based on cleanliness and the other half is based off speed and time. My name is Gretel DeMartin and I'm from Boulder, Colorado. My horse's name is Emiliano, but his show name is Milan. Since this is my second year here, I kind of know how things work, but last year I was a little nervous because it's like People from all over, like kids from, come for like school field trips and everything, so it can get a little nerve-wracking when all these people are watching. But, but yeah, I wasn't so nervous this year. So some people are here from like 4:30 until like 10 every night, just taking care of the horses. It's a lot of work, but it's it's worth it. My name is Neil Miller. I'm the show farrier. Sure, I put shoes on horses. 
I'm here to repair anything that's broke. My apprentice. Brendan Sheridan, man. I'm on my first year on my own this year, so I'm pretty excited for that. What kinds of things are exciting to do as a farrier? Uh, so taking, really taking a horse that's crippled or lame and making them into like the best performance horse out there is really cool and watching the progression of horses as they get older, as they train more. So that's the best thing. I get to work with horses every single day. So, Do you help them by like giving them a different kind of shoe? So depends if their angles are wrong. So there's a lot of things that can happen, but then we're here to fix it. So, so it's kind of like tires when you got to rotate tires yep. or change tires. It's exactly like changing tires every eight weeks. Yeah. <laughs> In the Hall of Education, see a beautiful white cow being groomed very carefully. My name is Sydney Allard. I am showing my heifer here, my purebred Charlie heifer. So we're clipping her right now to trim her hair and shape her hair the way we would like. So we just want them smooth and correct in their structure, so we just try to shape their hair to accentuate their good parts and kind of hide their bad parts. My name is Melissa Mosman. I'm a co-owner of J&M Show Goats. We're in Greeley, Colorado. We have boar goats. And those are meat goats? Correct, yes, meat goats. What does one look for and what they look like? Um, honestly, since it's a meat goat, they're looking for cuts of meat. So the loin across their back is their, their top rack. And so they're looking for a good wide one of those with lots of meat on it. They're looking for some good chunk in their butt um, they're looking for good musculature is that one of your goats yes. that, and it's so pretty do they look at all at what the coat looks like no not at all in fact some of the colored ones are harder to judge just because it's not as easy to see all the muscling and stuff on them are more people eating meat from goats not in the united states as much um, a lot of ethnic groups really love goat meat it's the number one meat in the world actually it's very low in fat high in protein low in cholesterol so it's really great for you my name is Wade Leachman. I'm the uh, herdsman at Rosebud Cattle Company, and we have um, Apex, the um, Angus bull, on display. He's a very good-looking dude. What makes a cow good-looking? I would say uh, the biggest thing is structure, how good they're, good they're moving and how good their feet shape is, especially right now in the Angus world, and just soft, good-bodied, and uh, they look like a good cow that's going to look good on grass. It's getting close to lunch. Hi, my name is Roger Sharp, and I'm the uh, owner of Big Bubba's Bad Barbecue out here at the Livestock Show in Denver, Colorado. During this stock show, we go through about 600 cases of turkey legs, about uh, 4,000 pounds of pork, and about 250 cases of pork ribs. Hi, my name's David. Um, we brought our son, Nolan. He's six and a half for the first time. The baby llama, the baby goat. It was cute. My name's Brody Erie. I'm uh, from Stephenville, Texas. I'm a professional bull rider. I grew up kind of in the western way of life, and my dad rode bulls, my grandpa rode bulls, so it really wasn't that hard to get into it. The challenges, obviously, the physical challenges is trying to stay on a bull, you know, that obviously weighs more and is stronger. And as I've grown older, I think the more of the challenges for me is being away from home, being away from my wife and my family and everything like that. That's more of a challenge now than the actual bull riding. In the home.
That was Benita Lee reporting from the National Western Stock Show in Denver. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Lara Jones and Rashawn Leak at KRCL in Salt Lake City, Alexander in Aspen Public Radio and Benita Lee with KGNU for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.